your friend. Thank you, brother. Thank you. I love you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. God bless you all. God bless you, and thank you for that very kind comment about, uh, about Mary this morning. Uh, I wish you were here with me. She made sure I was here because of the priority of the preaching of the Word, and her mother would have uh, heartily agreed. What a wonderful thing, by the way, to be given a mother-in-law you love so much. And uh, so, wonderful, wonderful Christian testimony all the way to the end. She was 98 years old. Yes. And you know what? Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of the saints. So we cling to that. And it is my great opportunity to be here with you, and I always look forward to being here at the Church of the Apostles. I tell people, every Christian's a member of the Church of the Apostles, but only a few get to be a member of the Church of the Apostles in Atlanta. Now, you're many few but what a powerful witness comes from this church. And uh, I had the opportunity. I was editor of the Christian Index here from uh, 1989 to 1993. And uh, during that period, I came to know of Dr. Michael Youssef, and I came to know of the Church of the Apostles. And I want you to know, and, and number one is because if I was looking for a lot of Baptists, I had to find them among you. Um, <laughs> But I, I also just learned of the, the passion, the conviction, uh, the evangelical commitment of Dr. Michael Youssef. And I saw what the Lord has done. I've been a friend watching for so long as the Lord has built His church and as the Lord has built this church. And, uh, and then to get to know uh, my dear friend, Dr. Michael Youssef, over the years, and uh, for him to be here this morning when I am here with you. And so, my dear brother, thank you for being here when I am here with you. I get jet lag going to Los Angeles. I can't imagine <laughs> what you feel like right now. But isn't that wonderful, the incredible thing? I, I was thinking just as, uh, as I was watching the video with you, you know, the Apostle Paul never got to do this. The Apostle Paul never got to fly back and tell people so quickly what the Lord has done. And that just has to be something that makes us happy. We're living in a present evil age, okay? But in the midst of this present evil age, there are some phenomenal reassurances of the power of the gospel and the power of Christ to save and the glory of God in the display of the gospel. And to be able to hear about it so quickly is uh, something we ought never to take for granted. I want you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. And there are so many issues that uh, we discuss in everyday conversation. There's so many issues I discuss every day of the work week in terms of how Christians should seek to think through so many of these issues, headlines, controversies, and all the rest. What, what we do when we gather together for worship is preach the Word. And this morning, I want us to look at one of the most neglected chapters in all of Scripture, and this time of the year in particular. I want us to look at Luke chapter 1, because many, many evangelical Christians are Luke 2 Christians, as if the story that the apostle, that the, the gospel writer Luke, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us begins 
with the census and with the events leading up immediately to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. I just want us to be reminded and encouraged by Luke chapter 1 as we think about the most basic theme of biblical theology. So this is real easy. The most basic theme of biblical theology is the preeminence of Christ in promise and fulfillment. The preeminence of Christ in promise and fulfillment. And right here in this passage, we see promise and fulfillment. Now, we do not have time to read this entire chapter, so we're going to read some of it and talk about just about all of it. But you'll notice that Luke begins by saying, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. It's amazing, but uh, almost a third of the New Testament is made up of the writings of Luke, and they are addressed to Theophilus. Now, just given the background, it appears that Theophilus is likely to be a new believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and a man of some distinction and rank to have this relationship with Luke. But Luke is telling him exactly what happened. And we desperately need this. We need all four of the Gospels. We need all 66 books of the Bible. We need every single word of every single verse because it proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. But every one of the Gospels has a purpose. And Luke here is telling us, okay, this is what happened, and this is what it means, and it's going to be chronological, and it's going to be sequential, because Theophilus, I want you to know, and aren't you glad that Luke gave this to Theophilus, because we desperately need this ourselves. But you'll notice where it begins. So, so where does Luke begin? Uh, we often just jump to Luke chapter 2 and the birth of Christ. And of course, before that, as you know, it's the angelic declaration to Mary that this child, this baby, will be conceived within her. But you'll notice that's not exactly where Luke begins. Instead, in verse 5, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both blameless before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, one of the things that you discover in Scripture is candor. Candor. There's a remarkable candor. I just finished in our church teaching and preaching verse by verse through the entire book of Leviticus. <laughs> a year in Leviticus. And you know what? The congregation just grew as we went through Leviticus. Why? Because people were drawn into this incredible book of the Old Testament that in all of its specificity and in all of its strangeness to us continually points to Christ. But let me tell you, you do find yourself talking in church about things you never thought you'd talk about in church. 
and you've got 13-year-old boys and 85-year-old ladies, and they're in there, and you just got to talk about these things because they're in the Word of God. And let me tell you what we know about Zechariah and Elizabeth. They're holy. She's from a priestly family. He is a priest. They're blameless before the Lord in terms of the holiness of their lives, but they are old and they are past having a baby. Not going to happen. Not even imagined to happen. But as you know, that's exactly what happens. During the time that Zechariah is performing his periodic priestly duty, it is announced as an angel of the Lord, you see in verse 11, stands on the right side of the altar of incense. Zechariah is scared. Look at verse 12. You would be too. But in verse 13, the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Do you notice, by the way, in the Gospel of Luke, that's what the the angels have to say at first every time? (laughs) You know, we domesticate the angels. You know, we we treat the angels, you know, we, we, we put them on, you know, they look friendly and sweet. When an angel shows up in the Bible, do you understand the first thing they have to say is, don't die. Don't, 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 hang on a minute, don't die. I bring you good news of great joy. Because remember, they are the soldiers and the messengers of the Most High God. They appear reflecting His glory, and they come to serve His purposes. Well, Zechariah doesn't know what's happening here, and he's told this is good news. And he is told that his wife is going to have a baby. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, verse 13, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you will call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God." And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. It's an amazing passage. Remember, promise and fulfillment, the preeminence of Christ in promise and in fulfillment. And then if you were, as a Jewish person, And you know the Old Testament, and you hear what the angel said to Zechariah, you can't but think of promise and fulfillment. And maybe, maybe you hear a refrain of that as well. I want you to see it more clearly. I want you to understand that promise and fulfillment here is so literal, actual, visible before us that you just have to see it. Turn to the very last verse of the Old Testament. The very last verse. Let's look at the last two verses together. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. The very last words of the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. I will send you Elijah. 
and He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. What does the angel tell Zechariah? And He will turn many of the children of, the, of Israel to the Lord their God. And He will go before Him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Promise and fulfillment. Here we see it. The last verse of the Old Testament, the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke, and in that intervening time, Israel had been longing for and praying for and watching for the fulfillment of the promise. And the promise, by the way, ultimately is not Elijah, but Elijah is the one who will make the way for the promise of salvation. And now Zechariah, this aged priest with his aged wife, is told that a baby will be conceived within her who will be a son, and it is Elijah. Can you imagine that? Now, this isn't reincarnation. That is completely foreign from the Scripture. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. But there is in the Scripture a sense of the continuation of a prophet's specific mission. It's often referred to as the prophet's mantle, his authority. And though this is not Elijah, this is the continuation of Elijah's ministry. What Elijah began, John the Baptist, as we know him, will complete. He will come as a new Elijah with the spirit of Elijah, fulfilling the promise of Elijah. And as we know, with the courage and the weird preaching of Elijah, powerful preaching, declaring the way of the Lord, making the way straight. But Zechariah is here told this is going to happen, and Zechariah is thinking what an aged man would think about the promise made to him and to his aged wife. How can these things be? And then you know what happens. He is struck so that he is unable to speak. Gabriel is the angel, as you know from verse 19. I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Not just any angel. Gabriel who stands in the presence of the Lord. That's why he had to say, don't die. But now he's saying, don't speak. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Well, you know what happens. The baby is conceived within Elizabeth. And Elizabeth, Elizabeth is visited by her cousin. And her cousin is Mary, to whom Gabriel appears with the promise of the Christ child to be conceived within her. And there is not only the pattern of promise and fulfillment, there is the pattern of some kind of questioning that came from Zechariah, which is contrasted with the absolute submission and joy of this very young girl, Mary. Now, again, we as Christians naturally, because of our 
our understanding of Scripture, the, the preeminence of Christ in promise and fulfillment, we want to jump immediately to the revelation of the Son of God in human flesh, to the incarnation. We want to jump immediately to the coming of the Messiah. But that's not where Luke begins. That's not where the Holy Spirit had Luke begin. There's a beginning that we need to understand in order properly to welcome the Christ, properly to worship the Christ. John the Baptist, as we know him, was necessary, and so is the unfolding of the story. So we, for the sake of this message, are going to skip over what we know in the angelic visit of Gabriel to Mary there in Nazareth. You'll notice the promise, however, in verse 33, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, I wasn't going to do this for the sake of time, but I'm going to do this. In verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And Gabriel said that he will be struck mute because he said here, you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Mary, in verse 34, says to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born and will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, I raise that to say, you know, to my pastoral ears, Zechariah and Mary sound very similar. They both hear the angelic declaration, and they both in their own way ask, how will this be? But evidently, Zechariah's question and Mary's question were not heard by Gabriel as the same question. So maybe we just need to think of it this way. And if you're a parent or if you're in any context where you have, say, multiple children or multiple members and multiple employees, you know that the question from one means something different than the question from the other. There's a difference between, how can this be? And how can this be? Well, we do not know, but Mary is presented to us as the picture of submission and obedience. Zechariah is, however, still very much a part of the story. You'll recall that even as the angel told Mary that Jesus was to be conceived within her, you will call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sin. She was also told about Elizabeth, and you know that you realize you're looking at two radically different miraculous births. John the Baptist to an aged elderly mother, Jesus to the opposite. We believe a very young girl, a girl not yet married but already betrothed. Both of them are miraculous, but only one is a virgin conception. But you know what? These two women who were cousins, they shared an experience. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that prenatal conversation? <laughs> they both said about the other, what? But Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. 
and some of the most amazing thing happens. Do you realize that John the Baptist is the first preacher of Christ? Do you realize that John the Baptist is the only prenatal preacher of Christ? The only prenatal preaching of Christ in the entire Scripture is John. You see this right here in Luke chapter 1. In verse 39, in those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord." promise and fulfillment. Do you realize that Elizabeth here is really functioning as a model of biblical theology? And by the way, she is saying this when the males in her family can't speak. Read the text carefully. This is a conversation between Elizabeth and Mary. Zechariah can't speak. John is in the womb, so he has to preach the only way he can, in the presence of the unborn Christ in his mother, John leaps for joy. Just imagine that. Just imagine that the first sermon was a jump in the womb because there's no mistaking the message that was sent. The very reason I exist is here. I have a mission to do to prepare the way for him. Now, what follows immediately thereafter is another text that demands our attention, but for another time, it is the Magnificat, it is the prayer of Mary, which is another display of biblical theology far beyond anything you can find anywhere in the Old Testament. This young girl weaves together prophetic promise in such a way, it is as if she is a walking Old Testament. This little peasant girl from Nazareth ties together promise and fulfillment in a way that no mere human could ever accomplish. But then notice where we come in Luke chapter 1 after that. Look at verse 37, 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And that's just because she had a son, given her, her age. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. Now, here's the thing you need to understand. You'll notice that they would have named him Zechariah out of respect for his father. 
That was the tradition, and you see this, and this, this tradition is such that even where there are multiple names given to, say, sons in the Old Testament, they often include the name of the father. And so, this is a situation in which by custom, as the baby is circumcised, the name is to be given, and because Zechariah cannot speak, the crowd just makes the inference that the boy should be named Zechariah, and it is Elizabeth who says, no, his name shall be called John. But this is strange. This is strange. Notice where the passage goes. Of course, the people say, none of your relatives is called by this name. This has to be explained. Why would you call him John? Why why, why John? There's no John in your family. And they made signs to his father in verse 62, inquiring what he wanted him to be called, which is another amazing thing. This is, is, I've had so many people mention this to me. Why, when people can't speak, do people assume they can't hear? (laughs) Because we we were not told that Zechariah can't hear, but they're making signs to him so that he can understand. Had to be very frustrating to Zechariah. (laughs) And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. Okay, so now the father who has the right to name his son, the father agrees with the mother and says his name shall be John. There is no one from the family with that name. The name requires some explanation. There is something unusual about this. And of course, as soon as he said his name is John, they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came along all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts. There's a lot of laying up in the hearts. Just think about Mary and others. This is what believers do. Brothers and sisters, this is what we do. We lay up Scripture in our hearts. We ponder these things in our hearts. We lay them up in our hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So even the crowd in that assemblage, they're catching a little hint of promise and fulfillment, and and, and yet they understand that that promise and fulfillment is now underlined by the fact that this is not merely Zechariah's son. This, This, it is as if this is a son with a much larger purpose. And then wait just a minute. How in the world do we explain Zechariah and Elizabeth as the parents of this child at this time? This has to be what God is doing. And Zechariah is about to tell them, yes, this is what God is doing. And it is fulfillment of promise. And this is where we go and this is where we end in this passage. Beginning in verse 67. And his father, Zechariah. Now, you'll notice something very interesting, very interesting. The angel appeared to Zechariah. Zechariah is the center of the story. He's the main character. It is the angel speaking to him. And then they say, this, is, this, this child, we'll call him Zechariah because Zechariah is his father's name. And then Zechariah, following in obedience to what the angel had said, echoed what Elizabeth said. No, his name is to be John. And here's this little subtlety in Scripture. Look at this. In promise and in fulfillment, in focus and in definition, just notice what happens in this passage. And his father Zechariah was filled. So now it's not Zechariah and his son. It is the son whose father is Zechariah. Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesied, saying, 
Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And then the son's father who is speaking speaks of the son. He speaks as his tongue has now been loosed to the baby he has just named obediently as John, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Now, aren't you thankful for this passage? What, what an amazing passage to remind us that the story doesn't begin in Luke chapter 2. And by the way, the story doesn't begin in Luke chapter 1. The story begins in Genesis chapter 1. And that's the story that's revealed to us. The ultimate story begins in this, the absolute, undiluted, infinite glory of the self-existent God who created the cosmos for His own glory. And remember, created the cosmos as the theater for the drama of redemption. Every single atom and molecule of the entire universe exists for one purpose, and that one purpose is to bear witness to the promise of God and to its fulfillment in Christ, to bear witness to the preeminence of Christ, who is the gospel of John tells us. John begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things are created by Him. Well, let's go back to John the Baptist for a moment. John the Baptist, this, this boy who grew up in the wilderness, this child of promise who was the foreteller and the forerunner, the one who's going to prepare the way, this child who preached the first sermon declaring Christ from the womb in a leap, as we come to know him, he will use other pictures in his preaching. What about this John the Baptist of promise and fulfillment? What did his father say? Just look at this again. Look at the sweet language of salvation. Why does he call out, blessed be the Lord God of Israel? Why? For he has visited and redeemed his people. And you say, well, he hasn't yet. Oh, yes, he has. Oh, yes, he has, because when he begins, he finishes. And right now, the big point is that all of the promises of the prophets, all of the anticipations of Israel, all of the yearnings and all of the prayers, and yes, even all of the sacrifices and all of the acts of piety and obedience have been pointing towards what God will do ultimately in fulfillment to the promise He made to Abraham and the promise He made to save His people from their sins. 
Notice the redemption language. This is Zechariah. And by the way, he hasn't spoken in a while. He's got a lot to say. <laughs> Look at the language of salvation. Redeemed his people. Raised up a horn of salvation for us. Authority, power, declaration. And it's coming from the house of his servant David. It's coming in consistency with what the prophets of old have said. And what is the promise? That we should be, here's the redemption again, saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us. You know, we've got to be careful with this language. We've got to be careful with speaking about how the world hates us. But then again, Jesus told us the world hates us. It's Jesus who said, if they hated me, why would you think they're going to not hate you? In this world, you will have trouble. Now, I say we have to be careful because we have to be careful to remember that even the hatred of the world to us is not about us. Insofar as we are Christ's people and people hate us because of that, they hate Christ. And it's made very clear that Christ had enemies from the beginning. I heard a preacher not too long ago said Christ had enemies in the beginning and in the middle and in the end. I wanted to say, preacher, you were wrong in one part, the end. Because in the end, Christ is victorious over all His enemies and ours. The preacher was right that the enemies are there, but they are there to be judged and to be destroyed. And you know, John the Baptist was the announcement that this is about to happen. The forerunner of Jesus. Now notice something else. In, in, this, in this language here about being saved, there's a very real description of God's people and their predicament. Saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show them mercy promised to our fathers. And then notice verse 72, that last part, to remember His holy covenant. God is always faithful to His promises. God is always faithful to His own character. His hand is not too weak. His love is not too frail. But the timing is all to His glory. And this is the timing. It's all coming together. And it's, it's two prenatal boys who declare the purposes of God. The first sermon preached by John the Baptist in the womb. And then his father, on behalf of all of God's people, articulating what this means, the redemption of God's people. And then you'll notice at the end of what Zechariah had to say, you child, speaking to John the Baptist, you child will be called the prophet of the Most High. Can you imagine that language? You will be the prophet of the Most High. Do you recognize what is happening here? This is in the, if you, as you know the Old Testament, prophet is not a compliment. Prophet is an office. It's an office. God raised up prophets as foretellers, the one through whom God would speak. And this is a father looking at a baby. I've thought a lot of things looking at a baby. I've never thought prophet because that is not what is given to me. It was given to Zechariah. 
to look at his boy and say, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You'll go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Again, the, the, the Elijah language, so powerful, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. And then look how sweet it is. Look at verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God. Do you know how it is that, uh, that I can be here with you this Lord's Day with death in our family? It is because of the tender mercies of God. The tender mercies of God explain how we as Christians can say goodbye to someone who loves so much because the one thing we know is that Jesus loves her more. Jesus loves her more. Our love can get her so far. The love of God takes her all the way to glory. The tender mercies of God. And then just notice those last words, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Picture of salvation, sunrise. Do you know what the sun declares? New day, new covenant, new dispensation. God in human flesh, a sunrise from on high. And then it simply closes to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And again, very similar to the angelic declaration that will take place just a few verses later in Luke chapter 2 with the birth of Jesus. But then don't forget John. In this first chapter of the Gospel of Luke, in verse 80, and the child grew and became strong. Strong how? Well, strong in every way from what we can tell, but strong in spirit. Isn't that what we want? Strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness. Again, promise and fulfillment. John begins his ministry in the wilderness. Jesus is crucified and resurrected in a city. And the risen Lord Jesus Christ ascended into heaven will reign over the heavenly city, a new Jerusalem, forever with all his saints. But John, he's in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. I want to share with you one final thought. What about John the Baptist? I mean, of all the figures in Scripture that we might think we look forward to meeting, I want to meet John the Baptist. I, I, I want to meet the first preacher in the history of Christianity. I want to meet the prophet who preached leaping in a womb. I want to meet Elijah. John the Baptist, Elijah, and I want to meet Elijah, Elijah. You would think that John the Baptist then is at the very first in the listing of the great saints of the Christian church. But there's an amazing passage about John the Baptist on which we will conclude. Same gospel, chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, 
And this comes after John has had a confrontation. John sends messengers also to Jesus to ask Him crucial questions. Look at verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? It's an amazing passage. Remember, he was in the wilderness. We were told that at the end of chapter 1, he was in the wilderness, and the crowds went out to see him. And Jesus says, you know what? You're not fools. You didn't go out into the wilderness to see nothing. You went out in the wilderness to see a man, to hear a prophet. Did you go out into the wilderness to see a a reed shaken by the wind? Then what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in the king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet, yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. I will prepare your way before you. And then look at verse 28. I tell you, among those born of women, remember? (laughs) Among those born of women, none is greater than John. None. Of those born of women, none is greater than John. John is greater than Moses. John is greater than Abraham. John, the second Elijah, is greater than the first Elijah. John is greater than every single saint in the entirety of the Old Testament. Can you imagine Jesus saying that? He does. But that's not where Jesus ends. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God. Is greater than he. The one who is least. In the kingdom of God. Is greater than he. Every single Christian. Is greater than John the Baptist. Every single believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is greater than John the Baptist. I can't explain why. I can only say that it's true. And it must be, it must be because the infinitely greater thing is to receive the fulfillment and the promise, not merely to declare it and make the way for it. So on this day, where just hours ago, someone so precious to me died. A lady who lived into her 99th year, frail and faithful. I read about John the Baptist. And in all of Israel, there was none so great as he. And yet the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. I can't explain it. It has to be the glory of God and the power of the gospel. And Jesus said it, so it has to be true. And it has to be glory. Let's pray.
Father, I'm just so thankful for all you've given us in your word. May everyone hearing my voice know you as Savior and Lord, confess Christ as Savior and Lord, and be strengthened in the gospel. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.